Thanks again for joining us here at South Suburban Christian Church for our online worship service. We're grateful that you've come. I know that if you're watching this or listening to this, uh, not at the time that it's being recorded, some of these things might not mean anything to you. But I do want to just pause as we begin our time together in God's Word to remember not only the situation in Afghanistan, but uh, our brothers and sisters in Haiti and uh, the wildfires out west further west. It seems in weeks like this that um, the whole world seems to be falling apart. But I want to assure you that none of this surprises God. He is still in control. He is on his throne and all things will work together for good for those who love and trust the Lord and are called according to, and are called according to his purpose. I share this with you not only to invite you to remember these situations and more importantly the people who are in the midst of those situations, but also to help frame our heart and our mind as we go to message number six in our gospel series. This is a difficult uh, text, particularly in our contemporary culture, as we have witnessed uh, the abuse that occurs uh, domestically in families, um, the abuse that leadership of institutions uh, regularly uh, seem to be guilty of, and the things that we need to learn and come to grips with, with regard to how we treat children, how uh, we live together as men and women, husbands and wives, uh, employer and employees. These are difficult times, and yet at the same time, I want you to hear this lesson as best as you can, as Paul, with a heart that loves the people of God, is trying to share with them how the gospel influences and touches family, everyday life of families, of moms, of dads, of children. Now, we're not going to get to all of this text this week. We're going to be looking at just husbands and wives this week, and then next week we'll finish up with parents and children. And so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm actually going to begin in verse 21. So I hope you find your Bible and, and look up that uh, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5. And before we read, as we read through this text and, and, and discern how God is speaking to us through it, I just want to share with you a story that I will never, ever forget. Uh, I, I remember this couple. They were, they were pretty nervous. For six weeks, we had been talking uh, about uh, what life would be, to be like as they got married. So it was the six weeks prep uh, for uh, their wedding. We, we talked about finances. We talked about family. We talked about faith, uh, household chores, um, intimacy. Uh, there are really no topics that don't come up during premarital meetings. They're raw and they're honest. They didn't attend the church that I was serving at the time, but it had been a really good time of conversation, of, of laughter, of prayer, and, and even a few tears, although they were good tears. But in this last session, as is my custom, we were going to talk about the ceremony itself, what the wedding ceremony would look like. Now, most every church does basically the same marriage ceremony. They're you know, the declarations of intent, the vows, the rings. As a matter of fact, that service, uh, in its sort of a skeletal structure, 
that, that worship service, and it really is a worship service, really was first designed, or at least institutionalized, by a guy named John Chrysostom in the 5th century. So the words, the ceremonies, the traditions that we have around weddings, they've been around for over 1,500 years. Now this couple and I had talked about how the church understood marriage and how important it is uh, what they were doing before God would also encourage those who came to witness it. Well, have I mentioned that they were kind of nervous? They were kind of nervous. At first, I just thought it was nervousness over, you know, getting married. But the husband-to-be said, well, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm really concerned because I'm not sure my fiancé is going to say that she will love, honor, and obey me. <laughs> well, well I, had to, I had to smile. Matter of fact, my wife didn't say that in our wedding ceremony. I said, brother, most churches don't use that word anymore. We've added something a lot more difficult to do in our contemporary wedding vows and declarations. We ask that you love, honor, and cherish. As a matter of fact, did you know that the charge to the wife to obey her husband isn't even in Scripture? I know you might have heard people say that. It's just not there. When I said that to that young man, he looked kind of perplexed. <clears throat> now, it was a part of the service. There, there's no, no getting away from that. But it wasn't in the vows for wives to obey their husbands. It was uh, actually in the declarations of intent. Now, the, I know I don't want to bore you or lose you. The declarations of intent are the words that you say I do to. The vows are the things that you repeat after me, it's that you say to one another. And the vows are the most important. I know, it's normally at this point I start to lose people. We don't really think about all the thinking that went into the creation of the Christian marriage ceremony, how it developed, how it was organized. And as I looked into the eyes of that young man, all I could tell was that all he cared about is that his wife-to-be would not need to say publicly that she would obey him. So what is really going on here? And what does the Bible say about husbands, wives, children, fathers, bosses, and employees? Well, as we look at this text this week and next, the context really starts with the last verse we read two weeks ago when we preached on the first part of Ephesians 5, looking at verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here is where the key to understanding this text begins, with verse 21. A call that we should all submit to one another. So my first point, submit to one another. Now, when we look at this text in Ephesians, we see Paul applying the gospel to family and work life within the church, within the community of the church. He says much of the same thing here uh, that he's saying in Ephesians in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, but significantly more succinctly than he says it here in Ephesians. Paul begins with what we like to say a general submission that then leads to a specific submission. Now, now before we go on, let, let, let's take a moment to look at that word, submit. 
or submission. Now, this word is found a lot in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Man, there's a sermon right there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders, referencing spiritual leaders here, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, these are just a few. A few passages in the New Testament where the word submit is used. Now, in the original language that the New Testament is written in, the word submit does not necessarily mean to obey. Now, in the New Testament, the word submit carries a meaning of, well, a willingness to yield to someone else because of or for the sake of respect, pure conduct, and or order, as in an orderly life. Now, as Paul begins this section, he's calling all of us in the church to submit to one another. That is, we are called to yield to one another, to let others go first to give way so as to show one another respect, to be willing not to be first in line, to want to serve and host one another, to desire to give the other person the best seat, to break out the good china, to open the good bottle of port. Not, not, not just that the staff submits to the membership of the church or the elders submit to the deacons of the church, or that the members of the church submit to those who are visiting us, but that all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are always called to submit to one another, to respect one another, to offer the best to one another. And then Paul goes on. Now, in your English translation, it, uh, it, it reads a specific way. But before we get there, let me set the tone with my second point. Now, I was talking with the tech team just, just uh, before we did the recording here. Really, this second point is two points. And here it is. Wives, respect, and you could say submit. Wives, submit to your husbands, respect your husband. Husbands, offer yourselves as a sacrifice to your wives. Now, the reason that I don't want to split this up into two points is because this statement that Paul makes is interdependent. Look at verse 22 with me. In your English translation, it probably says something like, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, there's a whole list of things that I could say there. It doesn't mean... Uh, women are to submit to men. Uh, it doesn't mean that wives are to submit to other men in their life. Paul is very specific here 
And I'm just giving you what Paul is saying. But in your English translations, here's the key that I want to share with you. That word submit in verse 22 is not in the original language of this letter that Paul writes. The original language, Greek, uses a grammatical tactic that refers back to the verb in verse 21. Greek doesn't really have punctuation like we understand punctuation. It's just one long, flowing, run-on sentence. So if we were to look at verse 21 and verse 22 and even on into verse 23, here might be a more literal translation of what the text says. Be submitting yourselves to one another in reverence to Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church, for he himself saved the body. Now, if you haven't turned me off yet, Stay with me for just a few moments as we unpack this and get rid of all of those things that we have been taught by American culture or Western, contemporary Western culture to see what Paul is really saying here. So, so in the same way that all of us are to submit to one another, wives show respect or yield to your husbands. And there are a few points here that are often missed. Paul is addressing wives here, not husbands, not the church leadership, not the state. He is only talking to wives, and he is asking wives to do this. So, so what does that mean? It isn't the job of the law. It isn't the job of the church's leadership or anyone else, but the whole weight of fulfilling this statement that Paul makes rests solely on the one to whom Paul is speaking. And even in that call of wives respecting their husbands, as Paul writes, there is a condition that is suggested here. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now I know that some of you are saying, Ain't nobody, but, ain't nobody my head but Jesus alone. Or some of you might even been saying, the only head that I have is my own head. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He immediately, in this uh, construction of, of this gospel-centered family, turns to the husband and begins to describe a relationship that is often taken out of context. Paul compares the husband to Christ and the wife to the church. Now, to properly understand this, one has to understand what Christ has done for the church, a point Paul is going to drive home even more succinctly in the upcoming verses. As Christ, who is the head. Now, here's the key. The word head means source, not boss. As the head, Christ, offered himself for the sake of the body, so too does the husband offer himself for the wife. That is, one requires the other. 
Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice yourself for your wives. There is a mutual dependency, an interdependency in Paul's mind as to how the marriage relationship works. And he is using the church and Christ as a way to compare the relationship of the husband and the wife. Now, now, now to properly understand this, we have to understand Christ and the church. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now when I first began to study this, I was really intrigued by this line. Have been for decades, actually. The reasoning is, is uh, for my struggle is, I'm, I'm not really sure the church ever fully submits to Christ, fully yields to its source, the church's source, the head, Christ. I, I mean, if the church indeed yielded to Christ and all it does, we wouldn't have a New Testament because almost every single one of these New Testament books are written because a particular church was not yielding to Christ. Well, maybe I'm not the one who needs to be arguing with the Apostle Paul, especially as he turns his attention now to developing the role of the husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, Christ talking about the church, might be holy and without blemish. My brothers, are you listening to this? Verse 28, in the same way, in the same way, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Verse 32, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, now the vast majority of this text isn't even about how wives should be doing certain things. I mean, to be fair, Paul is laying down tons of responsibility on the husbands, what the husbands should be doing and why they should be doing it. And so many people take this text and they use it to beat our sisters on the head when the significant corpus, the, 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 the most of it, has to do with our job, brothers. Do you know that the word husband comes from an old English word meaning house bonder or the one who holds the home together or the one who brings life to the home. You, you might have heard of the word husbandry. It's a, it is the act of caring and conserving crops and the breeding of livestock. It's used, for those of you who've grown up on the farm, you've probably heard that. 
It's the discipline of bringing forth life. That's our call as husbands, to bring forth life. Holding the home together. And interestingly, if I asked anybody on the street who's using typical gender roles, whose job is it to hold the home together? A lot of folks would say, well, that's the wife's job or that's the mother's job. But that is not the heritage and history of that word. It's our job as husbands to hold the home together. Evan Welcher um, was, is a Christian church pastor. He served a small Christian church in a really small town in Iowa. But the Baptist church across town didn't have a pastor, so he would oftentimes go over there and, and preach for them as well. Eventually, the two congregations, the Baptist congregation and the Christian church congregation, decided they ought to just go ahead and merge, and so that's what they did. His wife, Pastor Welcher's wife, Danielle, was diagnosed with cancer. After her death, Pastor Welcher wrote a book entitled The Resplendent Bride. It's a record, a diary, if you will, of his experiences caring for his wife. I have a little trouble getting through this. My brother, Pastor Welcher, discusses what it means to be a house bonder, the husband, the head of the family. He writes, For me, being the head of my family looked like laundry and dishes and cooking and keeping a food diary and counting her calories and preparing her feeding tube and injecting her medicine through her port and going to the pharmacy and bathing her and carrying her and sitting beside her on the floor of the bathroom next to the toilet because the nausea would not go away. We'd weep together. Headship. It's opening the door for her and holding her hand as you walk through endless hospital corridors because you love her and because she's too weak to walk by herself. It's pushing her in a wheelchair. It's cleaning the house because company is coming and she likes the house to be a certain way. It's cleaning the toilet because she's spending entirely too much time in front of it. It's keeping her water ice cold because it numbs her mouth sores. Headship. It isn't about your wife serving you. It's about the husband serving his wife as Christ served the church. In another book, C.S. Lewis is the author of a book entitled The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis describes headship as a Christ-like willingness to suffer and serve so as to enable the flourishing of the bride. That, my friends, is countercultural. Now, I know many in our culture think that the church teaches that manliness is when men get whatever they want and women are here to give it to them. But if we follow Paul's illustration that our model is Jesus, the one who spent three years on the road giving up his own pleasures, his own honor, his own throne for people who didn't understand him, who didn't appreciate him, and in the end crucified him. That's my model? Well, that gives me pause. And here's the thing, brothers 
and sisters. I believe that if it were Pastor Welcher who had had cancer, his wife would have done the same thing for him. And suddenly, we find ourselves back to verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.